0: This is Money Guide with Mary Stirk from Stirk Financial Services. Now, here's Mary Stirk.
1: Welcome to Money Guide with Mary Stirk, and let's talk about what's on everybody's mind right now, which is inflation. The markets have gifted us with another big round of volatility. And the headlines, if you're paying attention to the headlines, it looks like the apocalypse is about to happen. You know, everything is negative. They're talking war. They're talking soaring gas prices. They're talking increased food prices. They're talking about food shortages and global craziness and now even monkeypox. So, you know, if you're listening to the headlines, you would think that the world's just darn near about to end. But the reality is headlines are generally this way. And we have to look and filter through what we're hearing in the news in order to try to see the reality of things and then apply that to what we know about historical reactions, economic cycles, and what things actually do influence markets and what don't influence markets. So, You might think by listening to the headlines that it's time to kind of bail on your markets, bail on your investments, but I am going to talk a little bit about why that isn't a good idea and how to not let your emotions get you carried away with things. So let's talk a little bit about the inflation piece. Let's talk about what's driving the markets connected to that. And let's have some conversation about stagflations, potential recessions, and things like that. All right. So... The largest sell-off in the market that has happened more recently has been primarily driven by concerns regarding inflation and the economy, including the interest rate increases that the Fed has been doing. The reason that the Fed does interest rate hikes primarily is to slow the economy down, and it's bringing down inflation by cutting down on some of the demand. Because as demand goes up, if supply is down, we see inflation by higher prices. But if they can dampen the demand as they're slowly bringing the supply back into line, then we can start to get rid of some of that inflationary pressure. Now, there's a lot that goes into what the Fed does, and I can't even pretend to understand all of the inner mechanics of what they do. But that's the basics behind supply and demand. And if you think back to maybe your econ classes in high school or in college, it really is all about supply and demand being in line. So supply chain issues, when we have a supply chain issue and it limits a supply, but the demand has stayed high, we're going to see inflation. We're going to see the prices go up. People are willing to pay more for something that's in short supply. When we have... Major increases in prices, though, it starts to affect our pocketbooks. We don't like that kind of stuff. And so that's what we need to talk about a little bit today. Okay, so when you're thinking about the inflationary pressures, the things that work for us, the things that work in our favor is that we actually have a pretty darn good strong job market right now as evidenced by the May job reports. And we have pretty steady consumer spending. We haven't seen a massive downtick in consumer spending like one would expect when it comes to higher prices. So I'm going to talk about this a little bit. This is some information I actually got from CNBC. And it's talking about how companies are trying to pass along the cost to consumers And they're feeling the impact of that. Of course they are. It makes sense. We're seeing that in the market. We're seeing that in their stock prices. So I'm going to pick out a few companies just to talk about in terms of their sales to illustrate what I'm trying to say here. Amazon's most recent quarterly sales grew at the slowest pace since the 2001 dot-com bust. Netflix lost subscribers, last quarter for the first time in more than a decade. There are video game makers like Activision Blizzard, home appliance giants like Whirlpool, and companies even like 1-800-Flowers that all have reported weaker sales in the last quarter. Why would that be? People aren't spending as much on some things. There are companies though like Ford, McDonald's, Kinds, which is the craft companies, United Airlines even, that have reported resilient demand as consumers keep spending in spite of higher prices. So it's kind of interesting to see where people are spending money and where they're not. Obviously, I think that consumer is going to be spending money, it just depends on where they're going to put their money. So Are they going to spend it on discretionary items or are they still going to be spending it on some of the luxury items like airline tickets, trips, going out to restaurants and things like that? Um, James Quincy, who is the Coca-Cola CEO made the comment that customers won't swallow inflation endlessly, kind of cute since he's Coca-Cola and a lot of us swallow plenty of (laughs) Coca-Cola, but we're not going to swallow inflation endlessly. And I think that that's a really good point. There comes a, there comes a point where we're like, okay, enough is enough, all right, so let's talk a little bit about consumer spending so far this year. The Commerce Department said that consumer spending rose seasonally adjusted by 1.1% in March, which is the last report that they had out at the time of this article, and that the spending remained strong even among low-income households with an annual income of less than 50000 and that's Bank of America data saying that. So, The consumer confidence, the sentiments around things are moving lower, though. And, you know, they have all kinds of, like, moving ratios and things like that. If confidence goes down, lowering spending follows and things like that. But Bank of America is saying they're not seeing a tremendous amount of slowdown in consumer spending, despite the worries that are happening in the market. And what they're suggesting is that, people saved money during the pandemic more so than they had in a non-pandemic environment. They said on average, low-income households have $3,000 in their savings and checking accounts, which is nearly double what they had at the start of 2019. So it's given consumers a bit of a buffer, even when they're paying more at the gas pump and at the grocery store. Now, obviously... We're all feeling that, especially at the gas pump in the grocery store. Um, I have two sons who actually drive for DoorDash and deliver food for their living, and they live in California. Obviously, we all can imagine how much of an impact that's had on their pocketbook, not only because of where they are in California, but also because the gas prices are so much higher in the coastal areas than they are in the Midwest. So, it certainly is a factor for people all across the board. The gas pump prices are more effective on them than the food prices are because of the job that they have. However, it also impacts their standard of living and what they're buying at the grocery store. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the inflation and how that plays in a little bit with the jobs market, and things like that. Okay, the job growth slowed a little bit in May. In normal times, that could be a troubling sign. It would prompt fears that the economy is losing steam, or even worse, possibly heading into a recession. But I would suggest that maybe these are not quite normal times. We currently have nearly twice as many job openings available as workers willing to work in them. Let me say that again. We have nearly twice as many job openings available as available workers. And with inflation running at its fastest pace in four decades, a lot of economists and policymakers are saying that a slowdown is actually what the economy needs right now to recalibrate and get back to a more normal positioning. Okay. So does a cooling economy bring its own risks? Absolutely it does. Despite inflation, the recovery from the pandemic and the recession during that pandemic, the kind of the mini recession that we had, has been among the strongest on record. And unemployment has been falling rapidly and incomes have been rebounding faster for those who are at the bottom of the economic food chain. So If the recovery slows too fast and too much, it can hurt that recovery. If it's just too rambunctious and moving ahead too much, it can harm that. So there's this delicate balance somewhere in the middle that the economy and the Fed is looking to find to recalibrate and get us back to an equalization of supply and demand. This kind of delicate balance that I'm talking about really makes looking at those jobs reports trickier than usual because the number itself that usually gets the most attention, which is the new jobs number added, doesn't really tell us whether that mismatch between supply and demand is easy. So we have to look at something called labor force participation. Now, not to bore you with a lot of crazy stuff, but labor force participation really means the share of the population that's either working or looking for work. There is a thing that happens with people who are unemployed where there's a point in time that a lot of them just stop looking, and then those people are no longer counted in these numbers. So when that happens, it does throw things out of whack. So that's where we have to look at this labor force participation because we do have to take into account the people who actively are still looking for work. So the figure ticked up and made a 62.3% as the labor force grew by 330,000 people. So the 330,000 growth in labor force participation in conjunction with 390,000 new jobs available is actually an encouraging sign that the labor market itself is coming back into balance a little bit as the demand starts to cool and the supply starts to improve. Again, trying to get us back to that medium level where supply and demand are meeting each other where they ought to. So what are economists doing? They're really closely watching things like labor force participation, and they're also watching wage growth. Wage growth probably needs to slow up a little bit to help bring inflation under control. The Average hourly earnings grew 0.3% in May. Not that big of a deal, but here's the thing. The average hourly earnings are up 5.2% over the past year. So that pace of wage growth is starting to slow, which, again, is a good sign telling us inflation might be starting to come under control a bit. But it is substantially lower than inflation. And also the wage growth has been faster than what a lot of economists think is sustainable or stable.
0: Congratulations to Mary Sterk and the team at Sterk Financial for earning a spot on two Forbes lists, Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisors and Forbes Top Women in Wealth for four years running.
1: Welcome back to Money Guide with Mary Sterk, where today we're talking about inflation. We talked about inflation, meaning basically that the demand is higher than the supply, which causes prices to go up. We've seen that at the gas pump. We've seen that in the grocery store. We've seen that with used cars. We've seen that with new cars. I mean, it's just everywhere. There's, there's no doubt about that. One of the big headlines, though, that people are talking about is a word that many people have never heard before or understand what it means, and that is a word that's called stagflation. So what is this stagflation thing? Well, stagflation is an economic event where inflation is high, the economic growth of a country grows, and unemployment remains steadily high. So let me say that again, because there's three key pieces that have to happen for stagflation to actually be an issue. Economic growth is down, inflation is up. Well, we do have that, no doubt about that. But the key third thing on there is that the unemployment remains steadily high. This is an unfavorable combination, and it can really be a dilemma for a lot of governments because actions designed to lower inflation can inhibit the unemployment levels and can inhibit the economic growth. So you've got these levers of these three things that, you know, impacting one can have an adverse effect on the other and throw that out of whack. So... That's what stagflation is. The thing that I want you to hear me saying right now is what's preventing us from considering this a stagflation environment is the fact that the job market is pretty hot still. So before the break, I just talked about the job market. The numbers that came out in May, 390,000 new jobs created, great, That's awesome, but not as high as they have been in the past. But we also had this uptick in the labor force participation, which is the people looking for work available for those jobs. We currently have 1.9 jobs available for every one person in the labor force looking to work. So we have way more jobs available than people. I hear people, business owners, business leaders, communities, headlines talking all the time about they just can't find good people to work. What do they have to do? They raise the wages. It gets some people to work, but a lot of times raising the wages just pulls other workers from other companies. It doesn't necessarily entice somebody to come back to work who has decided they're better off not working for whatever reason. So let's go back to stagflation. Like I said, lowering economic growth, hiring inflation, and an increase in unemployment. There's not really a consensus between economists on what causes stagflation. And there's a lot of different schools of thoughts on what its origin are. But the two main theories that are out there about stagflation are, number one, supply shock, and number two, poor economic policies. I don't think anybody would argue that as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, we had supply chain issues worldwide So I think it's pretty clear that supply shock is something that we have dealt with lately. Okay, so when we have this decrease in the supply of a commodity, a service, we have parts, things like that, then it creates an environment for potential stagflation. We've also seen recently this rapid increase in the price of oil. We've seen the prices just surge which makes production costlier and less profitable. And that, again, slows down the economic growth. We've also, as a result of the war in the Ukraine, seen supply issues from someone who's normally a supplier like Russia. And we've had to cut off some of that supply as a reaction to what's going on with the war. So that is a further supply shock in an already stressed world and global economy. So it's no wonder that this is a problem right now. The other theory is that stagflation can be created by poorly made economic policies. So perhaps a government could create a policy that harms industries while also simultaneously growing the money supply too quickly. So the simultaneousness of this, these happening at the same time can lead to slower economic growth and higher inflation. One of the problems with stagflation is that it's really difficult to eliminate and bring things back into equilibrium, both in social and in fiscal or or monetary terms. And we don't have a lot of examples to point to either. So back in the 70s, I know a lot of you listening remember back in the 70s when getting a mortgage cost you 18% (laughs) on your interest rate. And at the same time, if you had a CD in the bank, you could get 12% for your rate of return on that. Now, is one good and one's not so good? Yes, that's great. We'd all love to get 12% on our CDs, but it comes at a price, right? It comes at a price if your savings rates are high, your borrowing rates are high, too. And we really saw stagflation boil out of proportion and out of control in the 70s. It at that time was blamed on the Federal Reserve's unsustainable economic policy during the boom years of the 50s and 60s, where they kept unemployment low and then boosted the demand for everything. And we had this really weird, unnaturally low unemployment. And then it triggered something called a wage price spiral. So the wage price spiral went into motion. And then all of a sudden they had to continue to raise interest rates to sky high values. And that's when we saw things like mortgage rates at 18%. Okay, after that, there was a lot of study about that, a lot of study about how the Fed could manage things to eliminate that potential from ever happening again. Now, could it happen again? Absolutely. Will it happen again? I hope that that's unlikely. I hope that we've learned lessons from the economic policies that have been in place in the past in order to prevent that from happening again to us in the future. Okay, so what have we learned today about inflation. Inflation at its most basic premise is when you have more demand than supply, prices are going to go up. We're also learning that the consumer in America has not drastically cut their spending from any measurable, meaningful amount in order to help bring the demand down to meet supply. We're starting to see the supply tick up because supply chain issues are slowly starting to resolve. So that should bring it back into equilibrium again, back into balance. Are we at an inflationary peak? Hard to say. Is it possible? Absolutely. What about stagflation? Well, what we learned about stagflation is you have to have high unemployment for that to be a thing. And right now we don't have that. We have a good jobs market and an increasing labor market participation rate, which is good for our economy. So those things all brought into the picture, those things all brought into consideration. I hope that's given you a good understanding and outlook about why inflation is such a big deal, what to know about stagflation when you hear about it in the news, and a few things to think about in terms of how you might control or adjust your own consumer spending. So thanks for listening to Money Guide with Mary Stirk.
0: The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of your audio provider and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities or services mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results no strategy can ensure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should only be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Securities and investment advisory services are offered through Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated. Member FINRA SIPC.